as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So welcome again. Whoever started the clap, thank you. It was long, awkward silence. So Adam, I think you did a good job. Hey, as long as nobody's sitting on the front row, I'm going to keep coming out. So I'm just telling you, I'm going to keep coming. All right. If you have a Bible, you can go to Matthew chapter 6. That's where we're going to spend a brief time today. But keep your finger there because we're going to jump probably all over. I have more sermon than I have time today. So somebody better start praying that we get through it today. If you're new with us, we are in week two of a series where we are going phrase by phrase through the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Many of you, if you grew up in a religious setting, a church setting at all, you may have prayed this prayer regularly, the Lord's Prayer. Now, my question, if you were here last week, how many of you practiced this week? Like you spent a few minutes each day praying, maybe praying that phrase we talked about, our Father, hallowed be your name. None of you. Awesome. Well, okay. All right. It was just a little slow this morning. One of you got it. So last week we talked about the, the reality that often in our church and, and really in our Western American setting, many of us are really uncomfortable with prayer, especially when it's together. Like we might pray ourselves to sleep at night. We might say a prayer over food. We might say grace, right? We, my kids literally sometimes like, let's all bow our heads and say thanks. They go, thanks. Amen. And that's, that's kind of it. But if we were to say, hey, let's spend an hour praying together as the church, somebody would skip church. I guarantee it if I announced that. Some of you would have a really hard time. Most of us would have a hard time with that. We need to be a church, we said last week, that prays together. And so what I tried to lay out for you last week was this idea, this principle that our relationship to God actually determines how we approach prayer. That it deeply affects how we approach our life of prayer. So if our relationship, if our perception of God is that he is distant, we will be distant in prayer. It determines our approach. If God exists in some sort of a sacred boundary that we're only allowed through if we're religious enough, if we're moral enough, if we're righteous enough, then we will be afraid to approach that God. If God is disinterested in us, if God is kind of that cosmic parent that's like, hey, kid, don't bother me too much, then we may be disinterested in prayer. But what we said last week is that Jesus started this prayer that he taught his disciples by saying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He gave us the invitation to intimacy, to pray to our Father. So I, I want to tell you as we kind of move into week two, I'm always amazed at, at how we plan our teaching series about six months ahead of time. And then when we get to the actual series itself, they, they kind of take on this life of their own. It, it's amazing to me, and I don't think it's any coincidence, but, but months ago, I sat down and started to map out on our calendar the dates and the breakdown for this as in heaven Series And I penciled in January 12th, the second phrase of the prayer that Jesus taught. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because that's where Jesus goes next, right? He says, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so this week, I sat down to write this teaching. And it was the morning after the missile strikes in Iran were carried out on U.S. bases. And I found myself wrestling with and even amazed at God's timing for our church. 
that the portion of Jesus' prayer that we would be dealing with today is that simple and that revolutionary phrase, your kingdom come, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Such powerful words, and I believe in such a pressing time. As I watched the news and I thought about today, I started thinking about how this prayer, and especially this phrase of this prayer, doesn't often make a lot of sense to us. I don't know if that connects with you or not, but in some ways these words seem somewhat counterintuitive. Are we really to believe today, followers of Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're off the hook. You just get to relax today. But are we really to believe that in a world where political leaders and coalitions can place us on the brink of war, that we are to pray for God's kingdom to be made real? And if we're expected to pray that, can we really expect that to come to pass? Or or is this just some kind of self-help mantra that Jesus gave to his disciples? Hey, the world's kind of going to go downhill, but just pray this and you'll feel a little bit better. I, I call that like the Oprah effect, right? Is that what Jesus is teaching? When I looked at the news this week, I, I long for things on earth to be as they are in heaven. I, I long for those words of the song that we sing here often where there will be no more wars. I long for us to not have to worry for the soldiers who would be on the front lines or the innocent civilians who would suffer in war. When I look at the corruption and the global political systems that divide us as humans today, I long for the things to be on earth as they are in heaven. I long for God to actually be the king, for every knee to bow and for his name to be glorified above all others. Because here's what I would say, our world doesn't often feel today like God's kingdom has much to do with it. It's easy to look at our world and say the kingdom doesn't really seem real in this place. But you know what else? This prayer Jesus teaches isn't just about a global perspective and the events and world empires that are going on around us. Not at all. This this prayer is actually meant, as Jesus said, to pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's actually meant to infiltrate every single longing that we have, the very core of our being. It's a prayer of request, asking God for heaven and earth to collide across the globe and in the corners of our hearts. And so we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I feel that as well. I long for heaven to cl- and earth to collide in my own soul, for heaven to be made real as it concerns my own deep insecurities, my fears, my failures, my anxiety, the depression, the addiction that so many of us uh, face. And it often lies in secret and reign over our lives with dominion. God, would you bring heaven and earth to those places? It's like this prayer in our world and in our lives today is the very prayer we need, but it's so hard to believe that it's actually possible. And yet, if you were to pick apart not just the prayer of Jesus, and I want you to grab onto this today, but actually the teachings of Jesus throughout the Gospels, throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you would find nothing he talked about more than the very kingdom of God. There's no topic that Jesus approached. Actually, if you look up the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, it's 86 times in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that he mentions it. I've got like 35 verses. I won't go through them all, but I will go through several of them. You don't have to turn here, but I want you to see this. Matthew 11, verse 12. Here Jesus says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. He says the kingdom of God is here, and it's advancing, and forceful people are pressing into it. 
Matthew 12, 28, he says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Matthew 21, verse 31, he says, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now, religious people, that's going to just mess you up. Tax collectors. <laughs> Some of you are like, prostitutes, I'm fine. Tax collectors, really? <laughs> Mark 1, verse 15. Now, watch this. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come. Where? Near. Repent and believe the good news. Mark 9, verse 1. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Mark 14, 25. When Jesus saw that, he had answered wisely. He said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Luke 4, verse 43. I've got two more. But, I, but Jesus said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that's why I was sent. What was Jesus' purpose? To proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. In Luke 8, verse 1, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. So here's the thing. If Jesus taught us to pray this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if he talked about the kingdom so often, I want to say to you today, followers of Jesus, you have to deal with the tension. You have to confront the tension today that earth often doesn't feel like heaven when we pray for heaven to come to earth. And yet Jesus taught like the kingdom was already coming and was here. That's something that should mess with us a little bit if you're a Jesus follower. You should be going, what does this mean? See, we cannot ignore this because, one, either Jesus was missing something or, two, we're missing something. I have a guess of what it is. <laughs> so I want to talk to you today about what we talk about when we talk about the kingdom of God. Now, I want to be really upfront with you as we dig in. I'm not joking. When we start to consider the idea of the kingdom of God as Jesus understood and taught about it, one message, one sermon, one teaching is not enough time. I will briefly be scratching the surface today. The kingdom of God needs really its own series in some ways, but it's also the thing that should infiltrate every teaching series that we do. It is the biblical story. You want to understand Jesus, the message of Jesus, the message of the Gospels in a deeper way. Study the kingdom of God. See, I, I meet people all the time, probably in nearly all the eight years we've been doing this thing called church planning as new community. I meet people, and you've told me about people, and you are some of those people who will come up to me or come up to you, and they will say things like, your church is different. They'll say that. We hear that, right? And I want to say to you, they might be talking about the music style. Sometimes. They might be talking about the fact that you can come in a t-shirt. Nobody's going to judge you. That might be part of it. But that's not what makes us different. What I believe, the very heart of who we are and the epicenter of what might feel different about us as new community is what I would say is a clear theology of the kingdom of God. Whether you know this or not, this is the heartbeat behind why I planted this church, why we do what we do here. So I want to talk to you about what we talk about when we talk about the kingdom of God. Now, to get there, I want to show you what we often believe about the kingdom of God. So to do that, I found the greatest theological clip from Tom and Jerry ever. So watch this real quick. <laughs>
Laws of Disease, Lost Fight with Bulldog. Pass granted. Frankie. Struck with flat iron while singing on a backyard fence. Pass. What some people won't do. Thomas. Just a minute. Oh. Apparently, your whole life was spent persecuting an innocent little mouse. Well, with a record like that, I can't let you through. I'm sorry, Tom. However, the Heavenly Express doesn't leave for an hour. If within that time you can obtain the signature of that little mouse on this certificate of forgiveness, you will be permitted to pass. Now, if you fail, it's this. Now, I just want to say, the cartoons are what are making the generation ahead of me weak, okay? I'm just, because we dealt with heaven and hell. The Powerpuff Girls and Power Rangers never did that, all right? See, I think this shows us, probably better than most books I've read, what we tend to believe. Heaven is up. Hell is down. Heaven is some disembodied future that we might get to someday. And the decision on whether we get in is made by how moral we are. And some of you, you only got an hour left. See, what this results in, what the common conception of the kingdom of God being this disembodied state somewhere up, right? Somewhere way out there is that the earth then is this sinking ship. I literally had a pastor say that to me one day. It's just this sinking ship. We're trying to get as many souls off of here as we can, right? I worked in a church. I think I've told this story here. And the, 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 the painting they had in their main office showed Noah's Ark, a big picture of Noah's Ark. And out, popping out of the top of the ark was the top of our church building. I, and there were all these white people walking in a field towards the ark. And I was like, I don't understand. So I hid the painting, and they, they just took, just, they were, I, should, I should have gotten fired. But it was just, it just was bad. It was bad theology, right? Because what this creates is a divide between us. It's actually, if you study Greek philosophy, it's dualism. And it says that there's a sacred world, there's a holy world, so when you come to church, you put on your best clothes, you put on your best face, everything has to look good, sound good, be good, and then there's a secular world, and out there you can just do whatever, and it creates this compartmentalized life. See, I meet people, this is, this is what happens to me in a typical week, by the way, I go to the gym just trying to work out, like just trying to enjoy life, and I'll see people who haven't been to church in months, and oh, I'm so sorry we haven't been there. I'm like, just, I don't care. Like, just, I'm putting my headphones in. Come back. Like, you don't have to apologize. And they'll apologize. I'm so sorry. And I think what they're thinking is I'm trying to rack up these heavenly points. Because what no one has ever apologized to me for is to say, Pastor, I'm so sorry that I'm not going out and making disciples and doing actually what Jesus told me to do. Jesus never said, go and go to church regularly. He said, go and make disciples. And we've got this dualistic mentality. So when we see Jesus teaching this prayer to his disciples, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we have to, listen, we have to do some massive theological gymnastics to make this conception of the Tom and Jerry heaven and hell fit this prayer. How does it fit with your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? It just doesn't work. 
So what was Jesus talking about when he talked about the kingdom of God? Let me, let me show you something about this prayer really quickly that you may not have noticed. Go ahead and bring the next slide up. If we were to break this prayer down, this is kind of what we would see. The prayer starts, our Father in heaven. And then you've got what theologians call the thou petitions. These are the claims to say, God, do what you want in this world. So we pray, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. We are at the beginning of this prayer saying, God, have your way in this world. By the way, that happens before we ever get to the me petitions that say, give us this day our daily bread. God, provide for us. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not into temptation. So what I want to say to you is if we look at this passage, a couple things we could say. Jesus' prayer starts with our relationship to God as Father. We talked about that last week. But the second thing is that his teaching on prayer immediately connects us, immediately connects us to God's broader plans for the world and for its trajectory. This is about the holiness of God's name being established in the world, about his kingdom coming to reality, his will being realized. And all of that happens before we are ever invited to pray for our own specific daily needs. Now, I want to say to you, if you start your prayers, like I do typically, God, be with me today. God, help me today. God, provide for us today. No, I'm not legalizing, making legalistic for you any way you pray. I'm not saying that. I'm saying somewhere along the line, our prayer has to submit us back to who God is and what God is doing in the world. And that's the kingdom of God. See, when we realize this, this is what we start to realize about prayer. Prayer is the intersection of God's sovereignty and our surrender. Prayer is the place where we say, God, you're going to do something in the world, and I want to be a part of it. So take me, use me for whatever you want. Most of us, right, in our habits of prayer, we jump to our requests, our needs, our desires. Some of you, though, feel so guilty about that that you'll never pray for yourself. You fall on the other end of the spectrum. But what if our prayer life started with stepping in line with the things God wants to do in the world around us? See, God will do these things anyway. He's sovereign. God will accomplish his holiness. Somebody say amen to that because that's a promise. That's hope. God is going to do the things in the world that he wants to do. His kingdom, his will. See, there are decisions. Parents, you know this. There are decisions that I invite my children to be a part of, but the decision's already made. Now, we're laughing, but here's the thing. Their life is going to be better if they surrender to where the decision is taking them. And I'm a fallen, broken father. We serve a good father who says, live your life and surrender to who I am, and it's going to go better for you. So that's the framework. Now, let's talk specifically about this phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as as it is in heaven. Everybody say kingdom. The word kingdom is the Greek word basileia, and it literally means the rule or the reign of God, the way things should be. When we look at the world, the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the reign of God is the way things God wants them to be. When we pray for your kingdom, your basileia to come on earth, we're talking about our space, our world. Right? That's what we're saying. Bring that to reality here. And when we say heaven, we're talking about God's space where the basileia, where the reign of God is already the reality. Where God reigns and his future purposes can be brought into that reality. So Jesus teaches this prayer. He says, when you pray, ask God to bring his reign to our space. Bring it to reality here. Let heaven and earth, and I love this image that one theologian says. He said, let heaven and earth get married together. Let them become one. The problem is, just like us today, 
Those who heard Jesus' words originally had expectations. They had assumptions of what this should look like. Because if I say to you the way things should be, you immediately go, well, I know how things should be. But I'm talking about the way things God wants things to be. But these early followers, these early believers, these early people who heard this prayer, they had images of them in their minds of what it would mean for heaven and earth to overlap. So for us, it might be, well, heaven and heaven comes, then we go to heaven. That's what we were like, Tom and Jerry, we want to get out of here. But it wasn't that way for the first century. See, what they understood when they talked about the kingdom of God was that God would actually be king. And you know what that meant in the first century? That meant Rome would not be king. That meant that the puppet kings, the Herods, would not be ruling over the Jews anymore. And where this came from was the Jewish understanding of history. Now, I'm going to show you a couple verses. If you can get there, great. But I'm going to go fast because I don't have a lot of time. Amos 5, verse 18. Here's what the prophet says. This is how they understood history. The prophet says, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. If you're taking notes, write that down. Day of the Lord. You can look that up later. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. See, the Jewish people understood history to be moving on a trajectory toward this single point in history called the day of the Lord. It was a day when God would become fully king in the world he had created. And that day would include judgment for the wicked, judgment for the unrighteous. Now, Malachi 4 gives us another vision of this. Here, here's what Malachi says. Surely the day, everybody say the day. The day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. Sounds like Tom and Jerry, right? All the arrogant, every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left to them. What we understand here for a people in suffering is this would be a day of justice. This would be a day when the unrighteous would be cast out of God's presence. There would be no more evil in the world, no more wicked in the world. But here's what Malachi says. But for you who revere or fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Are you frolicking, my friends? Because <laughs> we should be. Then, verse 3, you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. See, there's a day of judgment for the people of God, though. There's a day of hope. The Jewish understanding of history considered God's plan to be working towards a specific point, the day of the Lord, when all would be made well, when the kingdom would be real, it would be tangible, and things would finally change. See, this was biblical. This was specifically the Jewish view prior to Jesus. And it left people, it left the Jewish people with certain expectations. See, here's what they believed about the kingdom of God. When the kingdom of God would come, when the Messiah would set up the kingdom of God on the day of the Lord, it would be powerful. There would be authority. There would be a new ruler, a new way of reigning over the kingdom. There would be justice for those who had caused evil. Here's the other thing they believed. The kingdom of God would be physical, that if Rome was in charge, then when the kingdom of God was set up, there would be immediate relief. God's people would be back in the position of power. That's why Jesus' disciples are always trying to get Jesus. Hey, Jesus, go to Jerusalem. Like, go kick those people out. That's the capital. Get rid of those puppet kings, and you take your throne. Now, before we talk about how Jesus reframed this understanding, let's consider how this has translated. These expectations of the powerful, the physical the kingdom that would reign, the day of the Lord, how this has come down through history to the way we talk about the kingdom of God today, how we as Christ followers often talk about the kingdom. 
See, typically, thousands of years after Jesus, we are still deeply affected by these early expectations. There's about four different views on the kingdom of God today. Here's the options. I want to go, I know this feels like class, but it's so critical to understanding this. Four views that I want you to grab onto today. Typically, when we talk about the kingdom of God, number one, we might mean the eschatological kingdom. I paid a whole lot of student debt for that word, okay? I'm going to tell you what it means. It means the last things. It's an eschatological view. What it literally means is that the kingdom of God, as it relates to the end of history, it's the end times, the last days. Now, as you know, there are multiple views of the end times. We might get the Tom and Jerry version. It's disembodied. You go to heaven. This is where all of our apocalyptic fixations come in, right? How many of you read Left Behind and all 24 Left Behinds and the children's versions of Left Behinds and you watch the movies and some of you saw it back in the 70s when it was called another thing called The Thief in the Night and it was terrifying videos that they used to show students in church. Do you remember these? Anybody with me on this? Thief in the Night was like the original youth ministry. Let's scare the crap out of kids. That's what they try to do. But this is our fixation on the end times. It's chasing. It's rapture theology, right? Regardless of the perspective, when we talk about this view, the eschatological view, the kingdom of God is related to the end and has little to do with life now. So we could pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done someday in the future. Not on earth as it is in heaven. The second perspective is that it's mystical. The kingdom of God is mystical. So the kingdom of God under this view says the kingdom of God exists within believers. So it's all about how we devote our Christian lives to God. Our practices then, our rhythms, our disciplines are about entering into that mystical reality now to the best of our abilities. It's really not about the rest of the world. It's about how spiritual we can become. The third perspective is that it relates to the institutional church that when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're actually talking about the church. So let's, let's get the church as much authority, as much power in the world as we can. And it used to be that the majority of evangelical churches all agreed on what that meant. And so we had political agendas, and we had campaigns, and we knew where we were going. If you haven't noticed yet, even the evangelicals are confused about where to go. But that's what we thought. And then fourth, and this is directly related, when we talked about the kingdom of God, many assume this is a political vision. That this is about a particular way of being the empire or the way the empire exists in ruling the world. This is so prevalent, by the way. And this started, our political campaigns today started clear back in 300 AD. When Constantine set his kingdom up and said, the, Christ, the nation will be Christian. It is the kingdom of God. And the church and the state began to overlap and be married together. And it kind of messed religion up. It's continued ever since. I, I want to say to you, no matter what political side of the aisle you stand on, we assume that we are the bearers of truth, and we hold the keys to the kingdom. Now, we see these four views still today, right? We see those followers of Jesus who simply chase the end times. They don't know the word eschatological, but that's what they're chasing. We see the mystical, the people who say, let's just seek God so we can be enlightened. Don't worry about anything else. We see those obsessed with the church. Make the church holy. We're a city on a hill. If they want to get in, they got to climb the walls. And we see those who are obsessive politically about our candidate, our agenda. If we could just institute this agenda, then everything will be fine. The problem is, and, I, and I, this is the tension I want you to continue to deal with. The problem is our world still looks like heaven and earth are drifting farther and farther apart. When God said, bring them together. Now, here's where, here's where I want to close today. I've got like, you know, a few more things to say. Here's what we should be talking about 
when we talk about the kingdom of God. And I want you to listen to this scripture passage from Isaiah 61. By the way, this is, this is a prophetic passage. The chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 all the way through 66, are about God redeeming his people, restoring his people. If you want to see a vision of the kingdom of God as God sees it, read those 27 chapters, Isaiah 40 to 66. But in chapter 61, these, by the way, are the words that Jesus, the first time Jesus preaches publicly, he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and he begins to speak these words from Isaiah 61 to proclaim the kingdom of God. Here's what he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Look at verse 6. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. See, when we talk about the kingdom of God, here's what we should be talking about. Here's what we're praying for when we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. First, I would say, we're praying for the release of captives. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like captives being set free. This is, this is actually good news for the poor. The prophet says it's freedom for captive. It's release from darkness for prisoners. So in the kingdom of God, addiction is eradicated. Can we get excited about the kingdom of God? There's no more families ripped apart by the captivity of addiction. Emotional anxiety, depression, fear, sorrow, grief, those things don't hold us anymore. We find actually financial freedom in the kingdom of God because the kingdom of heaven starts to teach us what generosity looks like. What do you need released from? That's the kingdom of God. God, will you release this? Will you release me from this captivity? The second thing that we see in this passage is that it's about the kingdom of God is about the defeat of evil. It's about the evil being eradicated. Can I just say to you, if you are on the side of any human empire, then none of you are on the right side. There are no kings in this world that God has not set up and established. Look at the book of Daniel. That's what it teaches us. That God is sovereign, God is the king, and yes, we pray for our leaders, we, we seek righteousness for our leaders, but evil finally will be eradicated at the end of times. The oppressive third world nations will no longer exist. The oppressive first world nations consumed by greed will no longer exist because it will be the kingdom of God where evil does not exist. The release for captives, the defeat of evil, the third piece that I think we see in this is that God's kingdom gives favor for the unfavorable. This passage says, this is the year of the Lord's favor. I know you felt like last year God was mad at you. Like he was punishing you. He had you lined up and was just throwing darts to see how close he could get. And actually, he kind of hit you a couple times. But this year, this is the year of the Lord's favor. It's about forgiveness. He says, instead of shame, you will receive a double portion. You will not be shamed anymore. Some of you, if shame was not a part of your life, can you imagine how free you would be? If you didn't live with shame. 
if you let that go? Can you imagine what our churches would look like if the entire body of Christ said, yeah, we're a wreck, but we're set free by grace, and so we're going to live into this kingdom of God. Friends, you are favored by the God of the universe, favored for the unfavorable. Third, the redemption of pain exists in the kingdom of God. He says he'll bind up the brokenhearted. He'll comfort those who mourn. He'll provide those who grieve. You know what? I love that verse. I long for that verse to be made real because there is no place, no time that I feel less uh, poorly, feel more poorly equipped as a pastor than when people are grieving. I have no idea how to step into those situations and make things better. You know why? Because I'm not meant to do that. God is meant to do that. He says he'll give beauty instead of ashes, the oil. He's going to cloak you in the oil of joy. He's going to redress you in a garment of praise. You'll rebuild the ancient ruins. Those things that have been torn down in your life, they're going to be restored. And then he says, finally, there's a splendid purpose for the lost. I love this, by the way. He says, you will be oaks of righteousness. You're going to be planted for the display of God's splendor. God is decorating his world with the redemption stories of the people that he's rescued. When the kingdom is set up fully, your stories of brokenness are going to be on display because of the glory God has worked in those. See, I want to close with this. I read this quote this week. Jesus summoned and constituted, now watch, an alternative community of which we are heirs. Imagine, now just imagine this, that a small community, you might say a new community, set down in the midst of the empire and all of its aggressive ways is a small community that refuses to participate in the anxiety of the world because it imitates birds and lilies in this sure confidence that the Father in heaven knows our needs and supplies them. Our faith holds deep, central, and non-negotiable that God will form a new human community. And it's the kingdom of God. So as we close today, I want to tell you what we should pray for when we pray for the kingdom of God. And as we close, we're going to sing a song. I'm going to ask you to gather. It's going to be super uncomfortable. I told you this series. I'm not bailing you out of the awkwardness. If you're just so introverted that this is just making your armpits sweat already, just put your head down like you are super spiritual when we start playing. And you just pray on your own. You just go to Jesus. I figure either way, we're going to Jesus more than we have lately. But when we start to play, I'm going to invite you with two or three others around you to pray in triads for the kingdom of God to come. Whatever God lays on your heart, maybe it's the opioid epidemic in our community. Maybe it's something that you're wrestling with, but to pray for the kingdom of God. I have the band come because when we pray for the kingdom, here's what we should be praying for. See, the kingdom is the colliding place. It's living and it's subversive, it's humble in its power, it's redemptive in its authority, it's gracious in pain, it's surrendered. The kingdom of God surrenders to persecution. It's meek and mild, but with the force of a million angels. The kingdom is the place where pain and promise collide. The pain of earth in all of its evils, wars, famine, genocide, hate, all the evils, and the promise of heaven in all its hope, the promise of healing, grace, mercy, compassion, comfort, and hope. The kingdom is the colliding place where a man killed on a cross is the same Savior healing the world. The cross is perhaps perhaps the very best image of this kingdom. The beams stretching between the sky and the soil and then holding arms outstretched for the unity of humanity. The cross where the death of one 
was given for the life of all. Where the blood of one cleansed the hearts of all. Where the pain of one promised the healing of all. The colliding place. That's the kingdom of God. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I would invite you to gather with those around you just for a few minutes and pray.